I like to have my guests introduce themselves. Could you tell us about yourself? Yeah. Hi. Um, so I'm Ariel. I'm a senior product designer at Webflow, and I use the pronouns she or they. I've been a designer for about seven years now. My background is actually originally in education and public policy, though. Tell us a little bit more about working education policy and what, what's that like? And, and for people that have no idea what that is, can you explain it? So education policy um, was an interesting area to be in for me. It was a lot of pretty academic research, but also kind of the messy bits of politics, too. And so it's a fun area to be in. Maybe not so much now, but I actually think in a lot of ways it's very similar to design uh, or at least product design. There's a lot of stakeholder uh, analysis and, and trying to figure out uh, what the root of a problem is. And so I feel like it was actually a pretty natural segue from trying to solve problems for people in the education space to um, transitioning to education technology. Um, and so that's actually how I made my transition. Yeah, I really love how like noble of a cause it is to to be like, I think the education could be better and just dedicating time to that. That's amazing. And, and um, how long have you been at Webflow? About eight months now. And what do you think about it so far? It's been an adventure, honestly. So I've done a lot of kind of untraditional work there around, you know, like design operations and hiring. And as this all has happened, the company has grown incredibly too. So I've gone from being like the fifth designer to one of 10 on a team that's now huge. And even Webflow has gone from being kind of a bootstrapped company to this like big venture capital funded machine now. I know it sounds really cheesy to say, but Webflow has this really loving culture. Um, it's just some of the nicest, uh, most giving, kind people that I've ever worked with. And it's a very low ego and very trusting culture. And so it's been amazing to see how adding a bunch of people has just brought out even more sides to that. And I don't know that I've ever been in a company that has been able to scale a culture like this so quickly. It really sounds wonderful and, and confirms everything I've heard from people that work there through Twitter and talking to them in person and from my observations of how cool the CEO is. So that's, it's great to hear that you've had that experience. Uh, what do you do outside of work? So I recently bought a house in the Oakland Hills with my partner, and it's a, kind of a fixer. It's a pretty cool mid-century modern house that hasn't been touched in a while. And so I've been spending a lot of time learning about architecture and interior design and getting into woodworking and DIY projects. So that's been pretty fun. And now that we actually have space, I can do oil painting and and weightlifting and all the things that I wanted to do. That's awesome. I um, I had a um, my first design director always said that it's really important to have a creative outlet outside of work. That's not what you do for work. And it's cool that you have such a variety between woodworking and architectural design and and as well as oil painting. And 
I was going to ask about how many employees are remote. What is it now? When you joined, did you work from home and in a co-work space? Or do you, is there sort of a central office and some remote employees? Like, what's the breakdown look like? So Webflow has a headquarters in San Francisco. It probably has about 30 employees, but we are reaching our space limit. So we're actually going to be expanding the office because I think we're anticipating hiring even more people in the San Francisco office. Webflow in general is probably about 70% remote. So while I have always reported into the office and and sometimes take time uh, at home periodically, um, there are a lot of people who really only get exposure to the Webflow HQ via quarterly visits. From my understanding, Webflow is sort of leading the charge in the no-code movement and uh, hosting the no-code conference, if I'm not mistaken, if that's what it's called. Could you talk a little bit more about that and how sort of you see that in the future? No-code is really a movement about, I would say, increasing technological literacy without actually having people to learn how to code in order to build things. And so right now, I think it's something like, half a percent of the people on the planet know how to write code. Uh, And so really what no code is looking at is what a difference it would make in the future of the web and technology. If people who didn't know how to code could be able to build websites and applications without actually having to learn how to code. Um, I'm a really big fan of, democratizing things. Um, I think that's why I was drawn to Webflow in the first place. And that's why I was drawn to education also. Um, And so for me, I think it's going to be really interesting when we have the threshold for making things be more about people who are conscientious and thoughtful and want to make something and put it out in the world, um, but don't necessarily have the background versus people who know how to code and maybe just make things just to make things. I absolutely love that. I I think that trying to empower that 99.5% of people that can't code right now into being able to create with the same level of fidelity that people that can code it's really amazing to see, and I'm glad that Webflow's around and, and other similar companies are around pushing for that because I agree with you, like democratizing our access to technology is really like the best for everybody. Absolutely. Um, and I think one important thing is also that it's not necessarily trying to replace engineers. It's just um, essentially giving people a different way of communicating. So now engineers don't have to spend all of their time working on pretty basic things. Um, and people who don't know how to code can actually essentially mock things up without having to communicate with engineers um, in a way that is alienating or disconnected. Um, and so I think of no code as kind of like a, a middle ground, a, a translator where um, you don't have to have expertise in coding, but you can still make something real. Um, and it it doesn't have to be reinventing the wheel every single time. I love to ask people about design tools. So I'd love to hear about like what design tools you use and love and the rest of the design team at Webflow. But since you're building a 
design tool. I would consider Webflow a design tool. Maybe you could talk about what that feels like, what that's like to be building a tool for people to design with. (laughs) It's funny because I was always so into design tools before joining Webflow. I was known as kind of the the tools-oriented kind of operational person at so many of my other companies. And now that I'm at Webflow, I feel like I spend so much of that time thinking about how people work and the things that they want to build that I don't really pay that much attention to design tools outside of my work. We use Webflow to build Webflow, um, which has been a funny experience. But even on the design team, there is variation in how much effort people want to put into building something of a high fidelity. So we also have designers, including myself, who predominantly use Figma. I think so much of the process at Webflow in particular is iterating on things. And so I feel like Figma is more flexible for me to do so. And also because it's so easily shareable, everybody can see what I'm doing all the time. It's more about the communication. And so I wish essentially that we could bring that kind of fluidity into the kind of collaboration that you can imagine people doing when they're working and building websites or apps in Webflow. I would love that in Webflow. And I totally know what you mean. I used to work at Figma. And as soon as you start working in a design tool, you start to really get tired of having conversations about design tools and being that person that's always talking and trying new tools and talking about them with your team. And, oh, can we switch to this different one? Or, hey, have you seen this? And let's try it out. And so I really relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I also think a lot of designers have kind of a shiny ball syndrome where we're in anytime any new tool comes out, they just say like, Ooh, new shiny thing. And want to chase that. And I've always been very anti that even when I was somebody who was super excited about design tools. So even at a former job, I actually had a teammate who really strongly wanted to switch to Figma. And I made the team sit down and actually make an inventory of all the things that we wanted to do and why and how we would foster communication with other teams and get to the core of what we really needed and realize that Adobe XD was actually fulfilling that in every way. And that Figma was just collaboration on top of that, essentially. So I think as long as the tool works for you and your team and facilitates a good collaboration and communication process, like use that. But it will also still be not so silently cheerleading for Adobe XD on the side. Now that I don't work at a design tool company, I've started to realize that these conversations are really a a little funny because you can use all of the tools. There's no like, you have to pick one and use it. Definitely simplifies workflows with large teams, but there's no reason your team can't have some files in multiple design tools. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think um, I've heard a lot about larger teams using a variety of tools. I think the only thing that is sad about that is when you essentially spend all your time redrawing your other teammates' rectangles, essentially. So as long as the tools work together, I think that's great. Otherwise, I think this, um, like, we want to use Sketch or we want to use Figma is a little bit silly. It is, definitely. Well, speaking of what's silly and what's not, what do you... You know, there's a lot there's a lot of advice for new designers, especially for the web. And um, sometimes it's hard to cut through the noise a little bit. What do you what's your one piece of advice for a designer that's just getting into maybe designing and building websites? The biggest thing is pay less attention to what's happening in 
design. Um, I think so much of what made me a better designer when I first started designing was um, just practice, but also applying my um, traditional background to the actual design process and, and knowing a little bit more about the world or or about the way that people think and being genuinely curious about people more than I was about design. I love that. And it reminds me of what you said earlier of the, you used to be tool focused. And now that you're building tools, you think a lot about the problems you're trying to solve and what your customers are doing and what they need. And I think that that's a great direction for designers. What about more senior designers? What advice would you give somebody uh, in your shoes in another company? Can I cheat and give two answers? Of course, absolutely. I love it. <laughs> so one is self-reflection. I don't think that you can beat having dedicated time to really pay attention to the things that you enjoy and want to keep doing and the things that you want to grow at and are, are calling to you that you find interesting. I think it's really easy to get trapped at this kind of senior level and be so focused on delivering things for your job that you kind of miss the joy and you miss your possible trajectory. I think the second thing is essentially like you're set now, you're a senior, you're doing the work. It's probably time to start paying that back. So whatever that looks like to you, whether that's like mentoring or making resources to share with people or teaching or whatever, there's a whole generation of people who really desperately want to be a designer and they need real support, not just learning how to design for grid or responsive, but actual, here's what the design process looks like, support. I think that is really important for senior designers to think about because I think it's a lot easier to write a medium post about grid systems being responsive than it is to truly mentor someone and identify the needs of the community and those that are looking to join the community. There is a lot of great things in the design industry, but there's also a lot of bad things. There's sexism and racism and homophobia and transphobia and bigotry of all kinds. And I know that that's a big statement to sort of address, but what can we do to help combat that? So I think for people who are not in the oppressed group, the biggest thing is opening the eyes of the people around you to the things that are going on and calling it out. And then also creating the kind of environment where you can support and facilitate the processes to right those wrongs, essentially. That means like holding your HR department accountable if somebody says something that is transphobic or whatever. And also like hire those people. <laughs> That's the biggest thing you can do is hire those people and support them. The The other piece is being, I, I don't want to say a silent supporter. I think you should absolutely let people know that you're the kind of person that somebody can go to. But I, I absolutely think that people who are from underrepresented groups who are, are being oppressed have all the tools in their toolbox that they need to survive and, and support themselves. And so if you can put the attention on them and support them and essentially take a backseat, that's kind of the most important thing you can do. 
I love that when you were talking about hiring the oppressed groups that you weren't, you didn't just stop at hiring, you said and support them. And I think that's a part that is really important and that sometimes gets left out of conversations at higher up tables and companies that are looking at diversity and inclusion initiatives is that inclusion piece. So I think that's really great that you highlighted it. Yeah, I think that's probably the most important piece to me. I mean, I'm a white woman and it's not like I'm the most oppressed person in the entire world, but I have experienced sexism in the tech industry. I actually went through some pretty terrible stuff um, when I was first getting in the industry, when I was coming in through the education technology area and um, I actually wrote about that for Medium and it went viral and I ended up getting a lot of support and it was from people that I didn't know would be supporters otherwise. Um, I very much felt alone in this area. And so knowing how much of a difference it made to me to know that there were at least people who had my back and were looking out for me made me feel a little bit more like I could survive and I wasn't alone. And then even coming into the industry and working at the flashy San Francisco tech startup, I still have experienced moments where I feel like the black sheep because I don't act like a tech bro and I have different concerns and experiences. And it's really made a big difference for people who saw me struggling and took the time to listen and then actually respond and say that they wanted me to hold them accountable for those changes that made a huge difference. And I want to extend that to other people. I'm really sorry that happened to you. Unfortunately, it's a story that we hear so often in our industry. And I'm really glad that there were people there to be supportive to you. And I think it's awesome that you're extending that to other people. I think that's really important. Who is one person that listeners should know about? The first person that truly came to mind was Christy Tillman. She's a wonderful designer and she is now head of global experience design at Slack. Um, but she's had a super varied background. And so she she's seen and done a lot in the design community. But I think more than anything, she is a really good person about, you know, like speaking truth to power and has been really leading and facilitating a conversation about how to make a more inclusive design community. And she's just wonderful. I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So on this show, we share the profits, future profits. We haven't had any yet, but future profits from advertisements, sponsors, and uh, swag. We're going to have swag for the show soon with our guests. So you'll get part of that as well. But until then, are there other ways that the listeners can support you? I don't really want anybody's money. Um, I guess like... I can do a plug from my book that I'm writing, but otherwise, if you got money and you want to support people, I would say like donate to the interact project or something like I don't, I don't need it, but I love the, that you offered. I love the interact project. We'll definitely put a link in the show notes for that as well. And I'm really glad you brought up your book. Cause that was my next question is on your website. It says that you're writing a book due out next year. I would love for you to talk about that and, and how people can subscribe to stay up to date with, with your writing and when it will come out. Yeah. Um, so I'm writing a book about burnout and technology. It's, been a project that's been on my mind for a while, um, but I feel like as 
of recently, I started to notice a lot of people talking about leaving tech and never coming back. And I wanted to investigate why that was happening and write about their experiences and what we can do to make tech a better place and to help people take care of themselves if they can't afford to leave the tech community. So I have a newsletter. It's on my website. I believe it's arielnorling.com slash book. And I will be emailing updates about when the book will be released. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably my most active medium, Ariel underscore N on Twitter. I will link all of that in the show notes and I will subscribe to your newsletter immediately. Um, You also mentioned on your website that you're still doing research for your book. Do you want to talk about that as well? And maybe uh, if you feel like inviting additional people to, to be part in your research? Yes, absolutely. So I've done essentially a ton of academic research around burnout and tech culture Um, And I'm now in a phase where I am trying to talk to as many people as possible. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't just talk to people like me. Um, Most of the people I've talked to so far have been um, white people who live in the Bay Area. Uh, And so I want to extend the invitation for more people to be able to share their story with me, um, because I know that. And this problem is not just a Bay Area problem. It's ubiquitous and affects all different kinds of people. And um, especially if you're from an underrepresented group, would love more than anything to be able to share your story and give you a platform. I love it. And should those people reach out to you on on Twitter as well? Or or do you have a place specifically you want them to contact you? You can reach out to me on Twitter or um, email me. Um, I do have my email on my website. So whatever works. Um, And I'm also totally comfortable either changing names, keeping you anonymous entirely. I can be as as public or as private as anybody prefers. So um, if you have a story that you might be scared to share, um, don't worry about it. It'll be with full discretion. Ariel, it's it's been so nice having you on Bezier. Is there anything else that you'd like to share or plug or mention before we uh, finish up? I think that's it. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you being on Bezier. Thank you again. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for uh, inviting me. This has been really wonderful.